Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Broback. I'm Kemper Donovan. And this week we are tackling one of Kemper's favorite subjects. Miss Marple. Miss Marple. (laughs) Kemper, what are we talking about this week? This week we have a Christmas special because our Miss Marple short story is titled A Christmas Tragedy. So we're going a little out of order, a little fast and loose here with the 13 problems and we skipped ahead by two. Catherine, tell us when A Christmas Tragedy was first published. Well, it was first published in January 1930 in Storyteller, um, and it was published under the title The Hat and the Alibi, which follows in the tradition of alternate titles that are far more sensible than the title that they're published under now, but also kind of a, let's say, giveaway the plot. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. The Hat and the Alibi, I think, is a bit much, but... I will say this for the title. I'm very excited that we were able to do a Christmas special since we do have a Christie story we had never covered called A Christmas Tragedy. But let's be real honest here. This story has zero to do with Christmas. I believe that the word Christmas is mentioned twice within the story. Well, it's it's, it's two days. I, I believe that the crime in question happens two days before Christmas. Sure, but there is absolutely nothing anchoring it in Christmas, unlike The Adventure of the Christmas Pudding, which we did last year, which was a delightful Christmas tale. I mean, this really could have been at any time of year. Uh, well, you know what? I might disagree with you because there is a single element in this which actually does very much have to do with Christmas. Oh, well, or at least it has to do it has to do with gifting. Let's let's put it that all way. All right, well let's get let's discuss that when we get there and start off by talking about our victim who is one Gladys Sanders, a young married woman, and Miss Marple just has a feeling about her. Very excitingly, by the way, and we'll get to the framing of the story as we always do in 13 Problems, but this is a Miss Marple story, so she is actually telling the story herself. Yeah, Miss Marple's feeling is correct because Miss Marple is always correct, and poor Gladys <laughs> dies bashed over the head with a sandbag in her shabby rented room. And so, as far as suspects go, there is Mr. Jack Sanders, uh, who is Gladys's husband. And uh, who Miss Marple suspects basically the moment she meets him. And he's impoverished, but seemingly he's very loving towards this young wife of his. Hmm. Well, husbands mm-hmm. are always trustworthy in these stories, so I'm sure it wasn't him. <laughs> I'm sure not. <laughs> the next and only other real suspect here is an unnamed, unseen burglar who is nevertheless very much suspected due to the fact that the room seems to have been gone through and due to the fact that poor Gladys's earrings seem to be missing. So perhaps a burglar did it. Perhaps. The world as it appears to be. Let's talk about we're the 13 the problems. Of- our party. We're back at our <laughs> Bantry ba- dinner party. I know. We're back. We're Yay. back at our party. And so <laughs> three men have told stories and it's really decided that one of the ladies in the gathering has to now give their own tale of the macabre. Sort of like so, earn, earn their keep, right? It's like the three the three men right. have told stories, and Sir Henry Clothering is kind of complaining about 
how withholding they're being. But I also love that Dolly Bantry says, oh, well, you know, we're just being very womanly and listening rather than speaking, I which know. is, it's isn't just that like, appropriate? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Dolly Bantry, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> you're not helping anyone, Dolly Bantry. <laughs> no, you're not. Although I suppose telling Dolly Bantry to shut up is actually making the problem worse. True. So, um, True. We, we yeah, respectfully I, I'm disagree not, with I'm you, Dolly helping. Bantry, and we would like to debate that point with you further. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. That is the respectful way that we shall go forward with Dolly. <laughs> anyway, she doesn't know any story to tell, nor apparently does Jane Hellyer. Oh, so, shocking. Jane Hellyer um, is basically like, what? <laughs> and they're all like, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, oh, but she's so pretty. <laughs> so Sir Henry, our old friend, turns to our dear Jane, mm-hmm. and not Jane Hellyer, <laughs> but Jane <laughs> Marple, and asks her for yet another grisly tale from the murder capital of the world, St. Mary Mead. <laughs> and... Miss Marple's like, oh, well, no, I couldn't possibly have any more of those. There's only that, like, one shrimp incident. I love, by the way, that shrimp incident really was mentioned in the first Tuesday Night Club story, because I went back and I looked it up. It was Mrs. Carruthers, actually, who had a missing gill of picked shrimps. And I love that Miss Marple mentions it again. She is all about those missing shrimps. I kind of do want to hear the story about the missing shrimps. I know. Well, you really wonder what happened to them. Like, were they actually used in something, like, horrifying? I know, or like, did they did they like disappear into like a rip in the space time continuum? What actually happened? It was clearly amazing, whatever it was. <laughs> um, do you watch Alas. The Good Place? No, I'm told that I should though by many people. Oh well, one of the, one of the original incidents that indicates something is wrong is that the Kristen Bell character is really really upset about being dead and in this place, and so mm-hmm. she starts eating. She gets really drunk and starts eating piles of cocktail shrimp. Uh-huh. And she essentially ruins everything. So the next day, giant shrimps start like falling from the sky. Okay. And so I'm sort of wondering if that's actually what happened in St. Mary Mead. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like but there should be like a sci-fi retelling of these Miss Marvel stories, kind of like a like a more hardcore fantasy sci-fi version of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, but of the life and times of Miss Jane Marple. There's the Doctor Who with uh, Agatha Christie. Sure, which we've already referenced. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's right. true. I just want more of that. Anywho. Yeah, I, I, I would not be opposed. Anyway, so other than a trimping incident, Sir Henry pushes her to think of anything else. And so, oh, conveniently, she suddenly recalls little incident, just a little incident, mind you, right. at the Caston uh, Spa Hydro mm-hmm. many, many, many moons ago. Not to be confused with the Harrogate Hydro, which would be where Agatha Christie herself holed up for <laughs> approximately a week and uh, set Learned off a countrywide manhunt. So Miss Marple... Seems to have a bit of a knack for knowing when husbands really want to off their wives, because we've we've seen this before and we will see it again Mm -hmm. while she is on this retreat. And they even joke about how awful spas are. They're full of old ladies gossiping. And she agrees and actually makes Colonel Mantry feel bad because he's like, oh, I didn't mean you. And she's basically like, "Mm, you kind of did. And you're also kind of right, because she is nothing if not self-aware, because she's brilliant in 
all aspects of cognizance, basically. I can hear Catherine rolling her eyes right now. Like I can, I can Rheuma- hear it. She's there for, she's there, she's there for rheumatism. <laughs> oh, is she there for some rheumatism? I met Dr. Coles, my doctor there coming down the stairs as I was going up. And as I happened to want to consult him about my rheumatism, I took mm. him into my room with me then and there. Well, that makes sense. And by the way, this kind of plays into her being extremely old because we kind of get the sense that this story was a while ago, but she was an old lady then too. And now she's just a super old lady. That's true. But she does seem a little bit more active within this story. So she's just like regular old Mm -hmm. as opposed to super old. So in any case, while she's at this hydro, she happens upon Mr. and Mrs. Jack Sanders on a tram when they're all disembarking and they're on the upper level of the tram and Jack trips and falls down the stairs on the upper level or he falls sort of into the stairs, knocking his wife down the stairs. She had been standing in front of him. And luckily for Gladys, she is caught by the conductor and Miss Marple just sort of coolly makes her way down behind them without tripping. She never stumbled at all. So, of course, she immediately deduces that Jack, who is a former seaman, could not possibly have lost his balance when she, an old lady, did not. So, obviously, he meant to murder his wife by pushing her down a flight of stairs and making it appear to be an accident. She is on to him. Right, but she can't do anything about it. She can't do anything about it. Because what is she supposed to do? Yeah. Who would believe her? Like, what would you even say? Basically, Miss Marple is a precog. She is. That's exactly what she is. She is the Minority Report. She needs Tom Cruise yeah, to prevent a future crime. She's, yeah, exactly. But she doesn't have that. And she nope. can't even tell the intended victim of this future crime. No. Nope. So. Because she knows that she's just going well, to protest and say, no, my husband is so wonderful and not listen to her. Right. So she can't really do much of anything. And on top of all of this. This couple is very poor, to the point where they are living in a single room on the top floor alongside servants. And so what we kind of know is that it appears that Gladys must have some kind of trust fund. She has some sort of an inheritance, but she can't actually touch the principle of it, right? She she can, a, yeah, she has an allowance. She has an, is it, so she essentially can collect the interest on it, but she cannot touch the principle. And it's not sure what the trigger is going to be for her to be able to touch it, but apparently it's not happening anytime soon. Jack seems to be a grifter. I mean, more or less. <laughs> yeah. it's not, that's not said, but like he's not employed. Right. Like any good husband in a domestic thriller, he's poor, and the woman he has just married is rich or at least has access to money. And he has uh, very shady friends, at least per Miss Marple. Mm-hmm. So that's not good either. Um, nope. And then even worse, when they were getting married, they both wrote out wills. And they left all of their belongings to one another. Yeah. So that's... Da-da-da! Yeah, that's not great. It's very romantic. It is romantic if they actually love each other, but of course Miss Marple doesn't believe that. Also making well, I things... Well, Gla- poor, poor Gladys, I think, does love Jack. Sure, but whether or not Jack loves Gladys is very much in question. And also making things even more dire from Miss Marple's point of view is that there is a fire escape slash balcony sort of thing outside of this room all the way up the top floor with the servants. And Miss Marple knows that she can't, again, tell Gladys, don't go out there because I think your husband's going to push you off of it and kill you. But she very <laughs> smartly says, I had a dream and I saw something bad happening out there and I just think that you should avoid it at all costs and that seems to work because it's implied or maybe almost outright stated that Gladys is an idiot so Miss Marple kind of knows what she has to do to at least get her to listen and she does take this dream nonsense to heart. 
Unfortunately, four days before Christmas, George the Hall Porter dies of a series of lung infections. And then 24 hours later, (laughs) I know, charming, one of the uh, housemaids dies of sepsis. There's this woman staying at the Keston Hydro, a Mrs. Carpenter, who really is is just very ghoulish about this. And she basically says, these things come in threes. What, What she says verbatim is, this isn't the end, never two without three. Probably not the most wonderful thing to be hearing as you're staying in a spa trying to get over your rheumatism, but... Miss Marple takes it in stride, and she's still on the alert for anything happening with the Sanderses. Not because she has a superstitious belief in three, but just because she's worried. So at this point, Jack makes a big display of asking the old ladies for Christmas shopping advice for Gladys. And then he keeps asking all of them if they would either like to come with him or if like he can get them anything. He's uh, very courteous to them in a way that perhaps he was not previously. Miss Marple, of course, thinks this is highly suspicious. And more um, importantly, he had been listening in the doorway when Mrs. Carpenter mm-hmm. was saying her ghoulish thing about never two without Not three. Never two without three, right. So, right. so Ms. Marple, of course, yeah. is thinking, ooh, he's genial and warm because he's figured out that this might be an opportune moment to do away with his wife. Gladys herself has gone out for bridge night with her friends, which she does regularly. And then it turns out Jack has also gone out with his friends. I mean, he's gone, apparently, Christmas shopping, but also gone out with friends, etc. So he's been with other people. When he comes back, his wife is still out, and so what he really wants is he wants the old lady's opinions on the Christmas present situation. He's also three sheets to the wind. Yes. (laughs) Correct. Like, I feel like Miss Marple is polite about describing that, but I feel like he is super drunk, and it's embarrassing. Right, and he drags them up the stairs to look at various things he's apparently bought for Gladys in the evening bag. Unfortunately, when he opens the door to their room, Gladys is dead, face down on the floor, her hat covering her head, although even with the hat covering her head, it seems clear that she was sandbagged in the head because the sandbag is conveniently lying next to her head. So what does Miss Marple do, Kemper? Well, Miss Marple bends down and feels her, and she's cold and stiffening, and clearly this is a dead person. But Miss Marple, being absolutely convinced that Jack did it, keeps him away from the body. Jack kind of lunges for the body he wants to touch, and she won't let him. And it then takes them a while to call the police because the phones are actually down at the Keston Hydro. Mm, You don't say. Mm. But the police do eventually come and start taking statements. Miss Marple's very proud of herself about the fact that she gives a very cogent statement, whereas Sanders is wandering around outside, distraught, his head in his hands, and, you know, the other old ladies of the house are just equally living it up in, like, a very histrionics way, I suppose. Yeah, like Mrs. Carpenter is just a complete disaster, and Miss Marple has no patience for her. At all. None. At all. None. She says she's just nope. she's just silly. So Miss Marple gives this like very clear statement, and then they go back up to the room. But when they go back up, it's noted that the room has been rifled through, and Gladys's hat is now off and on the floor. Also, her earrings seem to be missing. So it looks as though somebody went through the room again. After she died. And after the old ladies and Jack had been up there. 
Right, to the point where the inspector wonders, was someone hiding in the room when you came in? And Miss Marple says, no, that's impossible, because she actually looked under the bed and she checked the wardrobe and there was a hat compartment that was locked within the wardrobe, but that wasn't big enough for someone to hide in and otherwise it was unlocked and she looked. So um, there couldn't have been anyone in the room while she was in the room. By the way, I misspoken. It was not Miss Carpenter. It was Miss Trollope. She, well, she's alternately referred to as Miss Trollope and Mrs. Trollope in the in the book, but she's more often but it, she's more often Miss Trollope than Mrs. So let's just call her Miss Trollope. But she's the one who goes into histrionics. She's the quote unquote silly creature. Mrs. Carpenter is probably like just like rubbing her hands together like, oh, I knew it. I knew it. It's three. It's three. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so let's talk about the world as it actually is, because obviously this isn't just some rando burglar. No. So Jack Sanders, here's the thing. He has an airtight alibi and all of the ladies saw his wife's body. So it couldn't possibly be him. Right. Hmm. So, so let's talk about clue number one. Yes. Clue number one. Is that hat on the floor. That darned hat. Miss Marple notes that, you know, this cheap felt hat is now lying near the body when it had been firmly over her head when they found her. And so the deduction is A, and this is what the police think, is that someone had to have been in the room. But if so, then who? And then why knock the hat off the body? It seems really odd because... What were they looking for under the hat, I suppose? Yeah, there's just there's there's got to be something fishy going on with the hat. And also, by the way, Jane Hellier is actually the only one among the assembled guests who asks an intelligent question of Miss Marple when she's done with her story. Because Miss Marple finishes and she's like, so who's going to solve this one? And everyone's like, mm, no one because we're terrible, but there's some inane conversation. And then Jane Hellier says, why was the hat cupboard locked? And Miss Marple responds, how very clever of you, my dear. And she's beaming. Jane Hellier then doesn't really understand the significance of that question, but it kind of goes along with the well, fishiness and also of the hat. And Miss Marple's answer, Miss Marple's answer to her is that the hat, the hat cabinet is locked because that's where Gladys had been hiding her husband's Christmas presents. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's not to be opened, um, right. which does, you know, link back to this idea that it is a Christmas story. <laughs> I suppose that's true. This literally could have been something she was making for him and didn't want to show to him at any time no, of year. I know. But... Look, I mean, obviously, <laughs> obviously, of course it could be. I'm just trying to make a defense of the title. So, mm-hmm. like, you know what? We are doing this as a holiday episode, Kemper. So, like, no, hey, let the, me. Let the me. title of it is a Christmas tragedy. We are totally within our rights to make this a holiday episode. It's just, I mean, just take out the word Christmas the few times. Like when he says, do you, do you have any Christmas shopping that I could do for you? He could have just said, do you have any shopping that I could do for you? I want to show you this well, Christmas gift I'm getting for my wife. I want to show you this gift I'm, ge- I'm getting for my wife. I mean, come on. I mean, it just makes it extra bleak to have it be a Christmas, I It think. does. It does, actually. And and I have to say there, and we, we will get on to solving this in a second, but I have to say that there is a bleakness to the fact that they live in this upper floor among the servants and two other servants have died and you have this Mrs. Carpenter who's just ghoulishly prognosticating about another death. There's just there's a lot of gloom and let's be honest, that often is the true experience of the holidays in a way. That contrast at least is always there. So 
one could argue that this is actually a quite fair representation of a Christmas story and one that we don't get often enough. I'm going to play devil's advocate with myself. This is a fantastic Christmas story. Especially if you think of Christmas stories as often being in that vein of, oh, God, this is not going well. Fragile. It must be Italian. Well, I think that's just fragile, honey. Oh, yeah. I've actually never seen a Christmas story. I don't think I have either. <laughs> well, you know, the thing that I was going to say was I always think it's funny listening to something like Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Someday soon we all will be together It's the fates of love Until then sequence is so depressing. Even It's a Wonderful Life, right? I mean, that's probably the most iconic Christmas movie, and that there's a lot well, of darkness in that you, tale. You, you can make an argument that It's a Wonderful Life isn't even a Christmas movie. You could, but I mean, it, it's framed right. with this Christmas pageantry, and it's always played, certainly, on Christmas, around mm-hmm. Christmas. That's a Christmas present from a very dear friend of mine. That's right. That's right. And a boy clan. But it's that contrast. What's the matter with everybody? Janie, go on. I told you to practice. Now go on, play. Oh, Daddy. <laughs> George, why must you torture the children? Why don't you? Mary. One of my favorite Christmas movies, Home Alone. Is about the development of a child psychopath. (laughs) (laughs) Neglected Kevin McAllister is left home alone to become a psychopath who tortures criminals. Yeah, who really tortures them as if they're cartoon characters, but they're human. Yes! 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 
Right. If you actually look through what they go through in Home Alone, they would be dead. Just a paint can would have killed them. Well, the blowtorch, the blowtorch in the front door <laughs> that burns off Joe Pesci's winter hat down to his scalp. <laughs> yeah. So you know what? This is a fantastic story. A Christmas story, this is. This is a fantastic Christmas story. And let's get to the solution here. Our next clue is <laughs> Chekhov's fire escape slash balcony. Comes up early on, right, that Miss Marple has feelings about this balcony, and she warns Gladys about the dangers of it. And the deduction there is that, like Chekhov's gun, that fire escape will go off in the third act of this story. It's going to be important. We've got to pay attention. Because, obviously, it is a way to enter and exit the room other than through the door. So when the door was locked after Miss Marple and Miss Trollope and Mr. Sanders found the body, that doesn't really matter. Someone could have gotten in and out again through the fire escape. And it turns out they do. Mm-hmm. So clue number three, Gladys gets a random call at her bridge night from a Mr. Littleworth. Just so after the fact, That's nobody knows That's a pretty bad made-up name. Like, I feel like Jan Brady it- could have made up that name. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mustn't feel left out because you don't have a boyfriend now. But I do have a boyfriend. Oh, you do? He's one of the nicest boys in the school, and he thinks I'm super cool. Oh, that's wonderful, Jan. What's his name? His name is George. George what? George, uh, George Glass. George Glass. I'll go wash up for dinner. Mr. Littleworth. <laughs> <laughs> it's a timely reference on your part, Kemper. <laughs> always, always with the timely um, references. It also kind of seems like maybe Gladys doesn't know who Mr. Littleworth is. But regardless, she seems all flushed and excited by having received this call. And so she leaves Bridge, like, at a different time than normal after she gets it. The worst thing about this, sort of, is that Miss Marple's a little bit like, well, you know, she was this silly girl who just sort of, like, was very credulous. Right. As to why she would just go someplace based on a call from a stranger. Let's just tell it like it is. Jack Sanders did it. The husband did it. So uh, the implication is... Yeah, and it was Jack Sanders posing as Mr. Littleworth. Well, I mean, he could have said... He could have told whoever initially answered the phone that it was Mr. Littleworth. And then she, when she actually got on, he could have been like, It's me, sweetie, and I've got a big surprise for you. Get on home. You know, that's definitely more likely, I suppose. But but, um, but I think Miss Marple thinks it's also possible that he pinched his nose and said something <laughs> weird. And she was like, OK, OK, Mr. Littleworth. <laughs> right. Oh, so let's talk about how Jack Sanders actually did this, because as we mentioned, he does have an alibi for the time when they found the body in his room. So right up until the moment that the body was found with Miss Marple and Miss Trollope, he is accounted for because he was with those friends. He was out carousing. There's no way that he could have done it in that moment. The only way he could have done it is if that body that Miss Marple saw was not Gladys's body. And whose body was it? Of course, this is another Christie rule. If she's casually mentioning people who have died in the beginning of a story, if she's littering the landscape with dead bodies, those dead bodies are going to be significant. So we have that housemaid who had just died from sepsis. That's who was lying on the floor. So you're saying that like Chekhov's gun, this is Christie's corpse? <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, so in a really, really creepy way, apparently Jack Sanders, like, took the clothes off the dead girl, then put his wife's clothes on her, like, stiff body, and then he moved her into Mm -hmm. their room. He planted her face down on the floor, 
And then he tried to get one of his wife's hats to go along with the coat, but because she'd locked the Christmas presents in there, the cabinet was locked. So, obviously, he had to cover her head, so he had to go back to her room. Since it wasn't Gladys, yeah. (laughs) Correct. So, he had to go to her room and get another hat that was hers and put it on her. And then, like, really, I guess, hope and pray that nobody's going to turn the body over. Well, that's why it was so cunning of him to act as if he was going to turn over the body. And Miss Marple was actually Mm -hmm. the one that said, no, 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 don't touch it. Mm -hmm. So, he's got chutzpah. Say yeah, that. he does. Yeah, I mean, just think about that for a second, too. He had to lug this poor housemaid's dead body, undress it, then dress it in his wife's clothes, and then do all this business with a hat. I mean, that is, wow. But and then at gets, Christmas. But then it gets worse. It gets worse. <laughs> it does get worse. <laughs> because that's the repurposed body of the housemaid. Gladys is still alive when they find that body. Gladys is out playing right. bridge. So at some point during this, they keep attempting to summon the police through the phone lines that obviously Jack himself cut. And so at some point during this, Gladys comes home to see Mr. Littleworth. And um, (laughs) she's like, Mr. Littleworth, are you there? Hello, (laughs) Mr. Littleworth. (laughs) I hear that you have a million dollars for me. Oh, all our dreams have come true. I hear that you've been speaking with a prince from Africa who has some oh, money no. he'd like to wire. <laughs> oh, poor Gladys. Poor Gladys. Especially poor Gladys because I guess she runs to Jack. And then Jack is like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, you have to see what happens. And so he gets her to go up the fire escape. Da, da, da. Up to their locked room where the body is there, and then it would seem that he made her check on it. I mean, I suppose it's possible that he invited her up there for other reasons than they found the body, but at this point, there are cops there, so it makes this whole thing extra suspicious. Well, as Mr. Littleworth, he made poor Gladys leave her bridge party early and then not go back to the hydro and get to the hydro late obviously late enough to meet him at the fire escape. So he cut short her last bridge game of her life. Like he's just the worst, the worst because then he bashes her over the head with the sandbag. And then when she is dead on the floor next to the other dead body, he then strips both of them. Mm -hmm. And then he puts his wife's clothes Back on his wife. Mm-hmm. And then I assume he redresses the deceased housemaid. Right. And then he lugs, he has to lug her body back to her room. At this yep. point, I mean, she has to be well into rigor mortis, I would think. She was dead two hours prior to the death of Gladys. It was enough time so that she was cold, but so that a coroner, at least at initial gazing at the body would not be able to tell the difference. Right. Would have have at least been able to think this is someone who just died. Correct. That makes sense. I mean, I wonder what he said to his wife to get her to go up the fire escape. Yeah. I have a fun game. Let's go up the fire escape instead of going through the front door. Gladys seems a little gullible, so. His big problem, though, was once he did all this, he had the hat, right? So he he needed to put the housemaid's hat onto... Gladys, which was already problematic because it's not his wife's hat and that hat presumably would have been missing from the housemaid, but 
probably no one would have noticed that, sadly, for the housemaid. But the hat wouldn't fit. And that is because apparently Gladys was a little old-fashioned and still had a great bun of hair, whereas Mm -hmm. Mary the housemaid was down with the times and her head was a shingled dream of 20s glamour. Right. So I I guess in a way, you know, this is a word of caution. Don't be a fashion plate because it might help getting your husband caught for killing you. I mean, (laughs) I don't really have words for that. So uh, (laughs) all of this is to say hairdos do matter in this, as do hats. And because a hat doesn't fit, he gets caught. He gets caught. And in fact, Jack Sanders is hanged. If the hat doesn't fit, you must not acquit. Jack Sanders, because of Miss Marple and only Miss Marple, does get caught. And he is hanged. And I do love this. This is such a Miss Marple moment. Sanders was hanged, said Miss Marple crisply. And a good job, too. I have never regretted my part in bringing that man to justice. I have no patience with modern humanitarian scruples about capital punishment. Oof. Miss Marple. <laughs> I know. Wow. I mean, I'll be well, honest. I do. Dark- Dark marble. <laughs> I certainly do. Not to get into an ethical discussion of that, but the other and the other interesting thing about this story, the sort of ethical framing of it, is that she gets into it by talking about how her nephew Raymond West gets exasperated with her because she thinks that the gossip that people tell each other and the assumptions that people make about other people are actually often true, and that it's okay to judge people based on kind of soft facts and assumptions because if you have a good instinct such as she has then that's how one should lead one's life and Raymond West says well that's not fair not gonna lie I agree with Raymond West right Um, I mean I know that you don't want to agree with him with every fiber of your being Catherine but he has a point if we all had the preternatural instinctual prowess of Miss Jane Marple, I suppose we could live our lives that way, but we don't. And nor does anyone because she's fictional. Agatha Christie did not herself. But that's a, it's just a dangerous argument to make that actually it's okay to make assumptions and to judge people based on what you think they might do because you're probably right. It's how you end up on a witch hunt. Yeah. But, I mean, this goes back to my constant opinion that there is a dark Marple. <laughs> and so you don't really know who Marple has gone after in the past because, well, she decided that she was right. However, there was one line, and I underlined it because I, I knew that if I went down this road, that is the reaction I would get from you, Catherine. So I did I did underline this line because I think that it made me feel better about Miss Marple. And certainly in terms of the world of facts versus alternative facts that we find ourselves living in to a certain extent in 2017, I appreciated Miss Marple saying this, and it's toward the beginning of the story, as she lays out that whole philosophy. And then she says, but facts are facts, and if one is proved to be wrong, one must just be humble about it and start again. So, that, is just this, that is just something that somebody who is convinced that they're never wrong would say, though. Know about that? I think if she if she truly lives by that caveat, then she's still okay in my book. She's not dark marble. But agreed, this is dangerous territory here for Miss Marble. This whole story is actually, as we've discussed, rather a dark little Christmas tale. I agree. Although now you've also agreed that it is in fact a dark Christmas tale instead of a dark, uh, you know, 
anniversary uh, tale or birthday tale. Anniversary tale. <laughs> no, I think that the the darkness is as as I said, what makes it a good and an interesting Christmas story. So I appreciate that. What I don't appreciate is that there was never any adaptation done of this one because I think this one would make a great adaptation. Don't you? Oh yeah, it would. It would be yeah, I definitely agree. I really wish that Joan Hickson had had time <laughs> to do some of these short stories because ah uh, Joan Hickson's version of this would have been mwah, fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I think it would have been excellent. It's really interesting that they didn't really bother with some of these. I mean, some of these short stories are really not worth adapting, but some of them are very much so, I think. Yeah, and, and as we've discussed, it's the Agatha Christie's Marvel series post-Joan Hickson that decided to delve into some of these. They just obviously made the decision with the Joan Hicksons that they were sticking to the novels and the novels only. But right. uh, that's a shame. I wish I wish that they had done the short stories. Christie herself, by the way, and it's in the I think the introduction to the Thirteen Problems. Yeah, she has a foreword to the Thirteen Problems, and I've been meaning to mention this actually when we have been doing these Miss Marple short stories. She talks about how Miss Marple has become almost a rival to Hercule Poirot in popularity. This is much later in her career, and she says. I get about an equal number of letters, one lot saying, I wish you would always have Miss Marple and not Poirot, and the other, I wish you would have Poirot and not Miss Marple. I myself, this is Agatha Christie speaking, I myself incline to her side. I think that she is at her best in the solving of short problems. They suit her more intimate style. Poirot, on the other hand, insists on a full-length book to display his talents. These 13 problems contain, I consider, the real essence of Miss Marple for those who like her. And that was written in 1953, where she still had many Miss Marples to go, Miss Marple novels, actually. But I kind of agree with her. I know, I think I know what she means about the short story style suiting Miss Marple because it's often a little bit of cleverness that can be conveyed in a small and unassuming and modest way. And that's not Poirot. There's not a big hullabaloo like we often see in the Poirot stories. And it's part of why I like it. But I just think it's really interesting, Catherine, that apparently Agatha Christie herself (laughs) preferred Miss Marple to Monsieur Poirot. I mean, (laughs) fine. Fine. Whatever. (laughs) What of... Well, on that note, happy holidays. Happy holidays. And next time we will be covering a Miss Marple, naturally. That one is The Companion. We're going to go back and do The Companion and then eventually The Four Suspects, both of which appeared before A Christmas Tragedy. And after that, we will be covering our next novel. Catherine, let everyone know what it is. It is Murder in Mesopotamia. Hmm. Perhaps drawing on some of her archaeological digs and time spent in the Middle East. I sense an exotic locale. <laughs> Can't wait. And in the meantime, we would love to hear from you as always. Please feel free to email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha. We're on Instagram also at All About Agatha. And of course, we're on Twitter at All About the Dame. And Catherine is on Twitter at Brobcat. And we love getting ratings and reviews from you. It really helps us out. Thank you so much to those who have done it. And please take a moment to do it if you haven't yet. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.
Vacation starts with VA. Whether you're feeling beachy, mountainy, or every E in between, you'll find all that you love all in one trip to Virginia. Start yours at virginia.org. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers Stay Clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save 